0: Well, good morning. morning. Worshipping with you this morning has been a pleasure. Uh, Been some uh, intimate moments in song. Some intimate moments as we communed together. Um, It was a... uh, It was kind of a... uh, a big moment as we got to hear from, uh, from our brother Ken again after so many months and uh, what he shared, uh, how Rodney gave uh, to Ken of his time. What a powerful testimony. Uh, what a powerful testimony that is. And that, man, that's, that's real, is it not? That is real. If you have your Bible, open to James chapter 4. James chapter four, as we uh, as we talk about real heart. Well, we are almost done with this series. Believe it or not, uh, this is my second to last message in the series on real. There's 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 three. Left There's today, there's next Sunday, and then two weeks from now, but uh, I'm only preaching two of the remaining three because on the last Sunday of March, I will be out of town. Uh, I'll be in Nashville. I have to go away and, uh, and uh, do some schoolwork, and so I'll be in Nashville, but you'll be in the very, very capable hands of uh, our good buddy, uh, Dr. Tim Henkel, who is about to turn 40, by the way. Uh, and he would like everyone to know that and congratulate him on that. Uh, because I'm 40, I, I can say those things. Uh, but uh, Tim, we, he, he's going to be bringing home uh, this message series. And, and really, uh, I'm really jealous of that message because it's really going to be good. And it's really going to be exciting as he talks about what it means to have real concern for, for people and and wanting to bring them into Jesus and I'm gonna end up preaching that if I don't move on so I'll stop but I encourage you to be here be here to support Tim uh, it's going to be a, a really 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 good day well as we have said from the beginning it is important for us as followers of Christ to be real yes or no Yes, and so saying that, I want us two times very loudly to make this statement, this declaration that we have said uh, for the past several weeks. So two times really loud together. As followers of Christ, we must be real. As followers of Christ, we must be real. Do you believe that? We must be real. I don't know about you, um... But this, this series has worked on me in, in a very powerful way as well. As the Holy Spirit has worked in my life, and I've encountered certain situations, and at first it was kind of working like, oh, what you just did wasn't real. You know, and it was kind of an after-the-fact kind of thing. But now I'm finding that the Holy Spirit is working and wait a minute, you should really know that what you're about to do or say or think is not real. You know, and I hope that you're finding that to be true for you as well, that the Holy Spirit works that way to convict us. And as we attempt to become more real, more genuine, and more authentic in our lives, that we allow Him to, A, to work that way, and B, be open to His leaning, be open to His, his leading as, <clears throat> as we talk about what it means to, to be real. Well, Part of my role as a minister is to tell the story of the people of God, and I, I enjoy that. I enjoy telling God's story because it, is, because it is our story, and that's what I'm going to continue to do, but today I'm going to open with a story that is not one of my favorite stories to tell, and I've shared parts of it with you before, but it's just one of those stories that it's just, it's not, it's not my favorite, but it's one that I think that, that you need to hear. When I was in seventh grade, a new family moved to our uh, church outside, just outside of, of Atlanta, and their family was the same size as ours, they had five people, we had five people. And their three kids were the same age, same grade as, as we were. And so we became very quick friends with this family. As a matter of fact, so quick uh, and so good that myself and their oldest son became best friends. That also happened for their middle son and my middle brother. They became best friends as well. But he and I just, we clicked, we bonded, we liked the same kinds of things and and, and very, very quickly, we became best friends. And we would see each other at, at church on Sunday, and we would spend a lot of time together. And we both kind of had, had talked about, uh, you know, ministry and God leading us that way. And I can look back on that relationship that began uh, somewhere around 1989. And I can say that that relationship is very pivotal to where I stand today, because it poured into and made me a lot of who I am today as we talked about ministry and we encouraged one another and all of those things. And so uh, the way we would do this is, uh, you, know, you know, metro Atlanta, you don't kind of live close, kind of like we do around here. You know, I lived back in a different county than they lived. And so, you know, my house to his house was like 25 minutes, okay? And so, you know, we didn't, see, it's not like we went to school together. So uh, the place where we would get together and spend time was at church and in youth group and, and that kind of thing, which also worked well because, you know, we were both into those kinds of things. and We became leaders in that group, and we would try to always work it where our families would go to lunch together after church. You know what I'm talking You remember that? Man, is it me, or have we gotten away from that? Have we gotten away from going to lunch together after church? And I don't mean just we at Cornerstone. I think across the board, and we need to get back to that. We need to get back to spending time together, so there's like a bonus sermon point right there that was not in the notes, but we need to get back to that. When we would do this, it's like one Sunday we'd go here, next Sunday we'd go there, or we'd also work it where, you know, one Saturday night I was at his house, the next Saturday night he was at mine, something like that, so we spent, we spent all kinds of time together, and we just, we, we, we grew up together and uh... you know we would do all kinds of stuff together he was with me through some really good times through some tough times uh... he was with me the very first time i got pulled over which happened to be the same day i got my driver's license no joke no joke he was with me in the car this was the same day i got my driver's license now I wasn't speeding and i wasn't intoxicated and i wasn't reckless driving but I drove a, it was a, I mean, it was like a land yacht. It was a huge, huge car. And it was back in the day when, remember, you had that true power steering where if you sneezed wrong, you were going to swerve off the road. And so, you know, I'm just trying to keep it in the middle, and apparently I'm doing this number. And I'm like two miles from the house, and here comes the blues right behind me, and I'm panicking. You know, I'm scared to death of, of, uh, of what's happening. So I'm pulling over, and I'm just shaking and uh, he's trying to keep me calm, and he's like, it's all right, you know, you weren't really doing anything wrong. And I rolled down my window, because it was, you know, it was an old car, and, and it wouldn't go, so I had to pound it down. And so I hand him my, my driver's license. Now then, uh, you, most of you will remember, you know, it's not the kind of driver's license we have today, okay, where you go and you do the picture, and instantly they give you the little plastic card, you know, it's the kind where they typed it up on a typewriter. Remember that? And you'd hold on to that for 45 days and then your plastic one would come in the mail like a month and a half later. So, you know, I'm rolling down the window and I hand him my driver's license and I am shaking like a leaf on a tree. I am scared to death because I've never been pulled over. I've never been in this kind of trouble with the law before. And my maiden voyage, here I I I get hooked up by the police, okay? And I'm scared to death. And so I hand him my license, and he looks at it, and he goes, "Son, the ink's not even dry on the paper on this thing. <laughs> the ink has not even dried on this thing yet. And you're already getting pulled over." And he had a great laugh at my expense on that, as did my friend. But you know, we went through those those times together. Uh, you know, uh, breakups and, and things like that with girls, and you know, it's just all kinds of stuff. Well, as we we got up into high school. We continue to be great friends and uh, um, as a lot of times happens, um, certain things come along that cause a, a little bit of a wedge there. And one of those things came along when I was a, a junior, and this is the part I've shared with you before. but I started dating this girl, uh, and you know how those kinds of things go. They can sort of in, inadvertently pull your attention away from one relationship as you focus on that relationship. You know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one that's got, okay, good, I'm glad. Well, I remember the night, I mean, I can pinpoint the night that this happened. We were on a double date, when I say double date, I think it was more him finding somebody so it wouldn't be like a third wheel. I don't think he was really interested in the person, it was just a, a fourth body to go along with us. And so, you know, we're riding, and I, I'm not real serious about this girl yet, and so my buddy is, he, you know, like I said, it was a land yacht, so it was a big old bench seat in the car, and he's, he's riding on the front bench with me, and the girls are in the back because we were smooth. And um, we're riding along, and we go to dinner, and I remember as we're walking out of the restaurant, and, you know, we went big. I mean, it was go big or go home. So as we're walking out of McDonald's to the car, I turned to my friend and said, hey, I want her to sit up front. I want you to sit in the back. And it was like in that moment, the relationship changed. Now then, not for him, he didn't change, but it, it, it did for me. It changed because all of a sudden, you know, my best friend, you know, he's, he's got bumped to the back seat, and she's got bumped to the front seat. And from there, I started to spend more time with, with her. And it wasn't a really positive relationship. It wasn't a relationship that I could, should have been in, in fact, it. It, uh, for, for a time, I, I didn't walk away from my relationship with God, but I think I pulled it from the forefront of where it should be. Well, several months into this, seven or eight months into this relationship, one Sunday after church, my friend and several other friends in our youth group, they confronted me on this. And they said, hey, what are you doing? Wake up. You've abandoned us. You don't care about us, all this. And... It, it became very, and well, they, you know, they came at me. They were just letting me have it, and I was defensive, and between me and my friend, it got, got very, very heated, and I remember just getting in my car and just leaving, peeling out, getting out of there. Finally, I, after I settled down a little bit, I came back, and they're still there. They're waiting on me. I guess they knew I was coming back. But I get back, and we talk, and, you know, apologize to my friend, you know, realize that the, you know, I've done wrong i've you know I'm sorry for how the relationship is now, and it's just I'm just not there anymore and of course he he forgave me, and we hugged and cried, and you know all that, but it just it still it still wasn't the same uh, the next year, you know we finished up our senior year of high school, and uh, uh, I went to one college, he went to another, and we would see each other during the summertime uh, because too, we were both working in churches and so we would get together and we'd talk about ministry and things like that, but it, it just it just wasn't the same you know because we had drifted a, we had drifted apart now his path and my path have been sort of similar, and that we both you know families and married and uh, I'm in ministry, and he was in ministry for, for several years he's, he's doing other things now, but the state of, of that relationship is that now this guy who was my, my very best friend in the whole world he's, he's just Really, he's just an acquaintance that I have, you know. And that's a, that's a sad thing. But he's, he's just an acquaintance in my life. And I've, I've reflected on that a lot. I've reflected on that relationship. I've reflected on those events. And I look back over that period in my life, and I, I realize that what destroyed that relationship was my own selfish pride. You know? Ultimately, if I was going to trace it down to one thing, it would be my own pride. My own selfish pride that that destroyed and, and, and brought that great friendship really to an end. Can anybody else relate to something like that? Because I think that probably on some level, We probably all can relate to that. We probably all can think back to to something like that. You know what, I don't don't think we do these things uh, intentionally. I certainly didn't intend for that to happen that way, okay? I I didn't know when I began, I I, I did not know when I said, hey, I want her to ride on the front seat, that that was the beginning of the end of that relationship. Had I known that, I don't think I ever would have said anything. But it just sort of happens, doesn't we let these things creep in? They creep in into our into our marriages. They creep into uh, in, into the way that we deal with people. They creep into our relationships and the way that we we deal with our children, with our coworkers, with our with our families. You know, selfish pride. It can creep into churches. I've seen Christians that have allowed it to take over. And what I've learned is that pride causes us to, to criticize. Pride causes us to to judge and to to hold grudges. And I'm I'm not talking about the occasional bickering. But I'm talking about that that something that is is deep inside of us. It's a part of us. It's it's something that that wells up within. It's that selfish, arrogant pride. And what I've come to realize is that selfish pride, it, it separates us from those we love. Selfish pride separates us from those we love, and if we're not careful, it can cause us to separate from the God who loves us. Now then, I don't mean God stops loving us and we're separated from God's love, but I think if we're selfish and we're arrogant and we're focused on our own stuff, I think it can cause us to stop loving God the way we once did. Are you with me? I think that happens, and I also think that these are the things that that break the heart of God. As I said a few minutes ago, what I hope to do today is is aim for your heart, or rather let, let God's word aim for our hearts collectively as a group. And so as we, we take up this letter from James, he's not pulling any punches. Of course, he, he hasn't from the beginning. If, if you've been paying attention and following along, you know that, that he has been hitting us with some pretty heavy stuff, and today is, is no different as he is addressing some things that are going on in this Christian community. He opens up with a, with a question in In verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, What is the source of wars and fights among you? Realistically, what that is saying, and yours might read this way, is what is the source of the conflict and the quarrels that is going on in your lives? Because evidently, these people that he's writing to, there's some fighting going on. And it's more than just bickering because he's calling it a war. He's calling it a conflict, it's a strife. People are are against one another. And they're at each other's throats. And he's saying, What is the source of all of this? And then he answers his first question with another question. He says, Don't they come from the cravings that war within you? You know, and that takes me right back to last week as we talked about real wisdom. As it talked about bitter envy and, and selfish ambition. Then in verse 2, he says, you desire and you do not have. You murder and you covet and you cannot obtain. You fight, you fight and you war. Evidently, there are some people that are coveting things that other people have. and, And to covet is to want something that is not ours. Okay? To want something that we haven't earned. To want something that we haven't deserved, that, that we don't deserve. To say, you know what, I don't think you should have that. I want that for myself. You know, covetousness is a, is, a, is a very bad thing. And apparently this is going on within the church so much so that people are willing to do whatever they have to to get whatever it is that they want. And James says, look, you're even willing to, to murder to obtain this. And we think, well, surely he's not talking about murder. Right? I mean, this is the church. But when you think about the religious climate and the political climate that James is living in and writing into, then you discover that, you know, it's, it's kind of a dangerous place. You know? Christians are scattered because of this climate that they're, they're living in. And. There are a certain group of people that really hate the Romans. I mean hate the Romans because they oppress the Jews. They oppress those people. They've got them under their thumb and they hate the Romans. Now then, there's a group that hates them more than that and that group of people is known as the Zealots. Okay, and they are zealous for hating the Romans. Okay, And even within the zealots is another group that is even more zealous than the zealots and the other group. And they're people that are known as dagger men who would carry a dagger inside their cloak. And if they knew that you supported Rome, they'd sneak up behind you in a crowd and slit your throat or stab you. Okay, And so maybe some of this stuff is is infiltrating the church if he's talking about literal murder. Now then, we know this to be true because one of Jesus' very first chosen apostles was a zealot his name was Simon he was called Simon the zealot you know what a great nickname to have you know that's what he was now then I don't know that this is necessarily actual murder going on but it's not too hard to imagine because I mean good grief we kill people today for stuff we think we should have do we not Christians kill people too Okay, it's, it's happened. You can Google it. I mean, it's, it's out there. But even if it's not talking about like actual, physical, literal murder, then I think it's also shooting at something else. I think it's talking about murder of the heart. You know what I'm saying? And murder of the heart means to hate someone, to despise that person's existence and, and, and very being. It's to think thoughts about them that are evil and, and dark and you think about doing stuff to a, to a person that are just absolutely, absolutely un, ungodly. We involve ourselves in, in character assassination. And so apparently this stuff is going on in James. And he's saying, you, you, you murder, you covet, you cannot obtain. And so he's saying, you're doing this wrong. And so he goes, he says, you desire and you do not have. You fight, you war, You do not have, because what? You do not, say it with me, you do not ask. Does God want to give us the desires of our hearts? What? Yeah, of course he does. God wants to give us the desires of our hearts. As long as the desires of our hearts line up with the will of God. If you are a person who desires someone else's spouse and thinks it's God's will, you are crazy. God ain't going to be happy about that. All right? And then there are people that claim those things. God just wants me to be with that person. Yes, I'm sure he does. God's blessings on you. No, God does not want stuff like that. But there are people that, that claim those kinds of things. And he, so he's saying, he's saying you, you desire. You desire you don't have. You ask you don't have. You don't ask in the right way. And then in verse 3, he says, Even when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask wrongly so that you may spend it on your desires for pleasure. What that means is even though you are taking the time to ask God, maybe you're not coveting all of these things and you're asking God, you're asking God wrongly or, or wickedly. Because the only reason you're really asking God for these things is for your own personal selfish gain. So he's saying you're asking the wrong way. You're not asking from a pure heart. You're not asking from from, from clean uh, motives. You're asking so it props yourself up for selfish gain, for selfish pride, for for, for selfish vanity. It's all about you and, and, and what you want. And then in verse 4, man, he drops a word in there that is heavy. He straight up calls them adulterers. Or adulteresses, depending on how yours reads. And basically what an adulteress is in this context is someone who is faithless to God. That's what adulteress means here. Okay, someone who has taken their eyes off of God, taken their eyes off of Jesus, and they've allowed other things to to become more important. And he says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? When it says friendship with the world, you know what that's really talking about? What James is really saying is you're cheating on God. That's what that means. That's why he's calling them adulterers. You are cheating on God because you are choosing the world over God. Does that make sense? You're allowing things to take over the spot in your life that is reserved for God. That's what he's saying. Okay? It's it's selfish and prideful to choose the way of the world. The way of the world says it's okay to fight. The way of the world says it's okay to covet. It's okay to murder. It's okay to to do whatever it is you have to do to get all of these things. There's a guy named uh, Douglas Jacoby and he says that, that worldliness is tantamount to spiritual adultery. This is exactly what James is saying right here. He's saying you are an adulterer because you have chosen friendship with the world over friendship with God. And it reminds me of what Jesus said in in Luke 11 where he basically says you're either either with me or you're against me. There's no neutral ground. Okay, you're either with me or you're uh, against me. There's no neutral ground. And I think we need to pay attention to that. Okay? Because I'm going to be honest, I think there's some times that we in this church, we are choosing the wrong side. Okay? Just, Just flat out there. I think we're doing that. I think there are some that are choosing the other way versus God's way. You're putting the world and its desires ahead of God and its desires. And when you do that, you're committing spiritual adultery. You're taking God out of number one, and you're removing Him, and you're putting whatever else, whatever else is distracting you there. That is spiritual adultery, and that cannot stand. And when people see that in our lives, it absolutely is not real. Right? That's not real. We get distracted by stuff. We get focused on other things. We get pulled away. We get caught up in some of this same, some of this very same stuff. And Jesus said, you're with me or you're against me. And there is no neutral ground. If you, you know, and and there are people that want to say, hey, I'm not going to choose the side of Jesus, but I'm not going to choose the side of evil either. Jesus is saying, no, it's not that way. If you don't choose my side by default, you're choosing the other side. Okay. In other words, if Jesus in God is not number one in your life, then something else is, and that's the kingdom of Satan. No matter what it is, even if it's not satanic stuff, anything that is not God, that is first place in our lives, is the kingdom of God, is friendship with the world, is spiritual adultery. And that is not real. He says, the person that does that becomes God's enemy. Or don't you think it's without reason that the scripture says that the spirit he has caused to live in us yearns jealously? When you read in scripture about the jealousy of God, don't think of God as just jealous. That jealousy of God is talking about God's love and protection of his people. You know what I'm saying? God is jealous of us. He wants to love us. He wants to protect us more than anything. And what this is saying is that God wants our whole heart. Not just part of our heart. Not just Sundays. Not just Wednesdays. Not just two Sundays a month. God wants all of our heart every day. Every hour, every week, every month, every year, for the rest of our lives. That's what God wants. He longs for us. He wants us. He wants us to be his his people. And so in verse 6, James says, But he gives greater grace. He gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God wants our hearts. And God will give us more grace than than, than we even need. He will give abundant grace by the the power of the Holy Spirit to withstand temptation, to withstand evil that is going on in the world, but it's conditional. Conditional. Okay, now you'll hear people say all the time that the love of God is is unconditional. And yes, in a certain sense, it is unconditional. God will not stop loving us as people. But in another sense, it is conditional because right here, it says that God opposes or resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. If we want the grace of God, how do we approach God? From selfishness and, and pride? No, through humility. And through that humility, God gives us the grace that we need. So he goes on and he says, therefore, submit to God. Or or, or another way of saying that is align yourself with God. Okay, get on God's plan, the way of doing things. But resist the devil and he'll flee from you. You know, we're not told to fight the devil. You know what I'm saying? We're told to fight the devil. We sing songs about it. The devil's in the way. We will run right over him. That is not going to happen. Okay? We need to, let me just say this. Let's stop teaching that song to our children. Okay? Because you know what that does? That makes the devil appear weak. Okay? You ever seen the shirt that says Satan is a nerd? To me, that's one of the most foolish shirts I've ever seen. Because, and you've heard me say this before, you know what you could do to a nerd. I, you know, I, I feel like I can probably dominate a nerd. Okay? I mean, that's what I think of when I see that that, that shirt. Satan is powerful. Satan is way more than we can handle. That's why he says, resist the devil. Okay? So when we're going along about our lives and we see Satan show up with something, we need to be like, uh, see, I've got to tip out of here. I'm gone. Okay? Because I cannot handle this on my own. And so then you know what I need to do? I need to go back and I need to go back and I need to get behind the back of my big brother, Jesus, because he's the only one capable of dealing with that. Because I'm not. Okay? So he says resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And as we draw near to God, we're drawing away from Satan. We're drawing away from the world. We're drawing closer to God and what he wants for our lives. And then right here, he says, cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded people. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Your laughter must change to mourning and your joy to sorrow. We think, wait a minute. Paul writes and says that we're to be joyful. One of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. What about that verse that says, You have turned my mourning into dancing, you've turned my sorrow into joy. Yeah, and that's good, and that's great. And that's talking about the joy of our salvation. But when James writes right here, he's saying, I think you've forgotten the joy of your salvation. I think you've forgotten what God has done, and you've become arrogant. Your heart is so full of itself that you're approaching God the wrong way. You're fighting with people. You're coveting what they want. You're murdering people, whether actual or or murder of the heart. And when you approach God, you need to have your spiritual adultery in front of you. So when you approach God, you're asking God to cleanse your hands. God, purify my heart. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Change your laughter to mourning. In other words, get rid, get rid of your arrogant attitude. Get rid of your pride and approach God with humility. Do you see what He's driving? He's driving at heart change. He's driving it at, at repentance right here. And then verse 10. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will exalt you. Or he will lift you up. And that's good news. God cleans us up. God purifies us. And that brings us to the point that I want to make this morning. And it's simply this. A real heart is a humble heart and a humble heart is an exalted heart. Does that make sense? Real heart means we have real humility in the way that we approach God. And if we approach God from a place of humility, how are we going to deal with one another? With humility with love, with grace, with with mercy. Exalting ourselves is not real. Have you ever met an arrogant Christian? They're not exactly setting the world on fire for Jesus because it's all about them. Now then, you know why I know that? Because I've been that guy. And I know that. I've been there. James convicts me in this letter when he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Change your laughter into sorrow. Change your joy into mourning and approach God humbly. And when you approach God humbly, He will then, He will lift you up. Now then in verse 11 and 12, He goes on and He talks about not criticizing others. And what that means is don't speak evil of another person. Especially if they're not there to to defend themselves. He talks about not not judging one another either. But you see, all these things that that James is is talking about, the, the fighting and the bickering amongst ourselves breaks the heart of God. Selfish pride breaks the the heart of God. Choosing friendship with the world breaks the heart of God. When we commit spiritual adultery by choosing the things of the world over the things of God, it breaks the heart of God. Criticizing and judging breaks the heart of God. When we choose any of those idols... That Satan, that the world offers us, those things break, they absolutely break the heart of God. And to dial this in even further, when husbands and wives fight and try to hurt one another, it breaks the heart of God. When Christians fight among themselves and don't try to resolve their differences, but we talk about each other and we slander one another's name and we try to assassinate each other's character, it breaks the heart of God. When children disobey their parents, it breaks the heart of God. When friends judge and begrudge and grudge, it breaks the heart of God. And if we find ourselves in that position with somebody, then we're probably finding that we're not praying for them, maybe at least in the way that we should be. And so if pride keeps you from working out your differences, you need to know that there is no grace available to you. Because God resists the proud. The grace is given to the humble. All of these things break the heart of God. And so as I'm going through these things, if you find yourself feeling uncomfortable, uneasy, if you want to avert your eyes, it's because your conscience is speaking to you. And I would say don't ignore it. Don't ignore the truth. Don't ignore what James is trying to get you to see. Now is the time to let Jesus change your heart. We must stop fighting amongst ourselves. We must put away our our arrogant pride because it hurts those we love and it drives away unbelievers and it breaks the heart of God. And it is not real. A real heart is a humble heart. A humble heart is an exhausted heart an exalted heart a real heart shows humility as it approaches God humility as we deal with one another flows from a real heart a real heart receives grace from God and God exalts the real and the humble hearts of his people this is about going low to get high That's what James is trying to get us to see. And if we are doing any of these things that James has mentioned, if we're choosing friendship with the world, people see that. They see that we're not committed to God. They see that we're not committed really to His love, that we're choosing other things over God, over Jesus, over the salvation that's been given to us and they say wait a minute that's you're not real you're not a Christian you claim to be one but you're a hypocrite you're just like everybody else that's not real we want to be real as we follow Christ a real heart is a humble heart a humble heart is an exalted heart let's pray together